0: This is Mig Chapolin, a.k.a. Grasshopper. Welcome to episode two of the podcast, Fuerza Inside the Mind of the Ridden Athlete. Today, our guest is well-known cyclist and uh, phenomenal ambassador to the sport and passionate father. We have Ted King. Welcome, Ted. Thank you very much for having me. I'm psyched to be
1: on. Uh, you are the first very first guest on my podcast so we've've've we've gone full circle here
0: that was that was a huge honor you know uh, to be able to sit down and discuss with you and I hope to aspire to what we did which was to discuss bikes and things related to that and then go for rides so truly the uh, the inspiration for doing this podcast is that I feel that um, riding and cycling together is the ultimate lubricant to great conversations and all these conversations that we have on our bikes sometimes for hours, if not days on end, if we could somehow emulate those in a podcast. I love it. No, that's perfect. Well, I'm psyched to be here. So thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Um, So first of all, I was, I jump a little bit away from my prescripted questions. and, And just, you know, since you, I saw that you walked into your office for the first time in 15 months, tell me a little bit about your life as it is right now. Oh man. Um, Yeah, it's a bit all over the place. I mean, 15 months is
1: on account of the pandemic, as your listener surely has heard of. It's a thing. Um, uh, We had a daughter. My wife, Laura, and I had a daughter at the very onset of the pandemic. Uh, Our daughter, Hazel, was born on March 8th. And I think that was literally the first day that the state of Vermont, where we live, had um, their first known recorded case of COVID. So, you know, that time stamped things and that, that, allowed the next certainly her first year of life to be at home with hazel learning this new cadence of of what parenthood is all about um which you know if there's any time to learn a new norm it's when the world has gone into lockdown like it's so strange to then now be on the other side of that trying to to come out of the lockdown anyway um parenthood is a huge piece of that um for obvious reasons, which I need not go into now, um, I am at the untapped office, like we just said, for the first time in 15 months, um, I have some tremendous co workers who have been here much, much longer, most of their day is dedicated to untapped whereas untapped is a portion of what I do. Um, I'm still, you know, I'm a, a cycling ambassador, I suppose, first and foremost, um, that is where I, I draw my income and, and it's, it's working with some tremendous sponsors all throughout the industry. Um, You know, an element of that is competition, but in my mind, my my competitive days are when I was racing in the World Tour, and now it's much more fun. I mean, so it takes thing like Grasshopper, which you know, you're not. It's fun to be on the on the podium, but you're not hell bent on winning. Uh, there's so much more to that community and the uh, people who are out at the event, which that's what fills my cup is just being part of that gravel community. Um. I do a bit of coaching, so that takes portion of the day. Um, and shoot. I feel like I'm forgetting something, but between those things, there's a whole lot of juggling that goes on,
0: yeah, we'll circle back. let me let me just tie in a little bit onto the fa- fatherhood aspect, which which I can relate to being being the the number one thing, number one priority.. Uh, and I would assume that you're very appreciative of the fact that this is happening with Career 2.0. When you look at professional cyclists managing families and being gone so much, um, that's an incredible strain. And you probably saw some of your friends and co- colleagues in the Peloton dealing with that and, and the being away. Um, mm-hmm. So I imagine you and Laura that you're able to still be professional cyclists, but to be number one you at know, uh, parents is the top priority.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, one teammate in particular comes to mind, Paolo Longo Borghini, who's he was a longtime Italian pro. Um, his sister, Eliza Longo Borghini, is, is crushing it on the woman's side currently. Um, he was a father of two, is a father of two. And he and I were often roommates. And, you know, to watch him parent over not even FaceTime over whatever the heck, Skype. Um, you know, that was interesting. His kids were at a, a formative age and they were certainly young, but, you know, he'd say like lovey-dovey things. And then he's also trying to discipline them over over FaceTime or, you know, he had a, he had an amazing spouse and wife at home. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's got to be an um, enormous challenge. Um, I look at somebody like Lawson Craddock. You know, he's he's racing the world tour. He's got two little kids. Um, I mean, I think it's just it's it's got to be a testament to an amazing spouse, amazing partner, uh, and the ability to parent very full gas while you're home, and then understand that when you're away, that, that things are a little bit more challenging but then it's you know it's when you're away that you can actually get some of that good sleep.
0: Right. And you know we might have to call cycle you back in as a future guest because uh, my goal in, in doing these episodes is to have have themes and and being the play on the words the ridden athlete being driven inside the mind. It's dealing with or discussing with some of the the nuances that that makes life so interesting and flavorful and complicated and one of those is is pursuing passion while being a parent and that's mm-hmm different for a a male athlete as a female athlete and have those discussions. What's that like fatherhood, motherhood? So we'll, we'll circle back on that some more because I have some good questions and some people to have different opinions. Nice. If we can, uh, the past. Okay. So past Ted King and in your bio, it's rather brief. Um, and all of a sudden you're a world pro tour domestique and, you know, seeing the growing up in new England, um, I would assume seeing that you have an older brother that you played sports like with those long sticks whacking around those little black things on the <laughs> ice, and mm-hmm. probably just walloping on each other. Tell me about early days of sports and what led you to be uh, the com- the fierce competitor that that you are that you, that you
1: um, yeah, I mean I, I have one sibling. I have an older brother who he played hockey and i picked up hockey um that was the big sport in in life i guess i played from the time you know i was on skates from the time i could stand until played through mid middle of high school um played all kinds of sports i was i was on the tennis team i was the goalie on the soccer team um you know and then in elementary school you literally play everything play baseball play basketball just do it all but but hockey was my sport that i really loved um At the same time, I also loved skiing, being here in New England, and our hockey coach, you know, he wasn't happy that I was skiing, and when I broke my arm, that was not a good move. When I broke my arm skiing, he didn't like that on the hockey team. So, you know, things were getting pretty darn serious in uh, high school leagues, and I was just a little bit tired of hockey. So... Uh played in a men's league from there. That's that was a hoot. I mean in high school, you know, you that means you wake up at four thirty in the morning to get on the ice at five thirty and play an hour before before school. Um with a lot of, you know, former high school and collegiate hockey players. Um and then let's see, I went off to college. I went to Middlebury College and um you know I, I I went there to the, in the pursuit of academics. It's a highly rigorous school. And, and you know, my plan was to get through <laughs> college with a degree. As a freshman, my brother came east to the University of Vermont, was hosting a collegiate national championship. And I went to and watched the race that he ended up winning, you know, I mean, to win any national championships, not easy. Um, And so to witness my brother winning a collegiate national championship as a freshman, it was, it was a good formative time in my life when I'm thinking, okay, I want to continue to pursue athletics. I mean, academics, but as I'm looking for some other sport or something else to do to stay active in college cycling, just it, it landed on my plate. Being that I can be the recipient of hand-me-down stuff. And I probably share some, some good athletic genes with my brother, So yeah, I got into cycling there and, and, you know, it's, it was helpful having Robbie as a mentor, as a training partner, uh, hand me down stuff, hand me down, uh, training plans. I mean, just to, to figure things out pretty quickly. And I took to it and became a collegiate all American and went over to the U S national team and, um, I just really dove headlong into, into all things cycling and still got through college in 4 years and quite pleased with that um so yeah i mean I'll, I'll jump through the rest of the history real quick from there uh my first job out of college was racing bike i raced 3 years domestically and you know i make the comparison often to professional soccer i say here in the united states we have a league we have major league soccer but at the end of the day as a professional athlete you want to make it to europe in in those two sports in cycling and in soccer so I had success domestically, I uh, was number one ranked rider on the North American circuit in 2008. And that caught the attention of the right folks overseas. So I went over to Europe on the Cervelo test team and that began a in total 10 year
0: run of professional cycling. So tell me about, uh, as, as an athlete, and for me, my background in racing was in mountain biking. So similar to to what I've heard from you, and this was also I spoke with Katie Hall growing up, doing a lot of different sports, season to season, basketball and soccer and football and tennis, whatever was happening, mm-hmm. and then finding our place in cycling. So as a mountain biker, one's always competing for their individual results. Um, and that's absolutely not the case uh, as a road cyclist. So what was that like having, being number one ranked, being... Uh, getting your chance to go to Europe and and discovering that your role was to be a team player and to be winning as as a as a team. You know, I think a lot of people that watch bike racing, and mm-hmm. it's really difficult for them to understand that you'll have athletes that maybe win a couple races their whole career in the big world tour races. Mm-hmm. Um, what, you know, what was that like for you as an individual, you know, kind of letting go of your individual aspirations and then the feelings of success racing with some of the best teams and being on some of the winningest teams? Yeah, it takes a whole lot of explanation to
1: to friends and family. Um, and, and, you know, I'd make other comparisons to other sports, I would say, often. There's one Usain Bolt, right? I mean, no matter how much other people in the race train and no matter how world-class they are, Usain is just a faster runner. And there are five people on the court on a particular team in a basketball game and LeBron James happens to be the best no matter how much other people train, practice, hit the gym, work on their drills. Like the best are the best because of reasons X, Y, and Z. Um, my whole career, especially coming to cycling late, um, it was one that I think I had a different perspective from a lot of my teammates who, you know, might've been racing from the time they're 10 years old and just always got through, you know, to the next level, to the next level, to the next level and told continuously that they're the best thing since sliced bread. Whereas, you know, I had this Turned a different perspective and appreciation for every time a door would open. I'd be like, oh, wow, what a cool opportunity. I'm going to take it. Like, even from the beginning of having success in collegiate and then turning that into a domestic career, like, oh, wow, they're going to pay me to, to race a bike. Like, what a novel idea. Or, oh, man, there's a European team that wants to have me overseas. Like, how cool is that? With, of course, you know, it's not as simple as how cool is that. It's like, oh, am I ready to change my entire lifestyle and move to the other side of the world? Uh, okay i guess so um and you know the team aspect that you were talking about is something that i learned certainly through playing team sports all throughout my career up to that point and all throughout my athletic life up to that point um and then from the very beginning racing on at that point priority health was the name of the team which ultimately became bissell which you know had a nice long run in domestic racing the the team camaraderie is so cool um and especially i think at the domestic level everyone does have their time to shine so maybe maybe you're a sprinter and you're going to work well in the crits maybe you're a hill climber and you can do well in some of the stage races whereas you know the higher up in the sport you go you make it to europe all of a sudden you're working with the very very best of the best so you know my first cervello testing we were i was teammates with carlos sastra who literally just won the tour de france the year before uh tour Hushov was you know, in the top three best sprinters in the world um, at that point. So it was just, it was novel. It was this eye-opening experience. It was, it was very much understood. Like I'm not going to barge into these European teams and be like, "Hey, Tor, why don't you lead me out today?" <laughs> um, it's, it's just a easy understanding. That's, that's the, I suppose hierarchy. Better word than anything.
0: Yeah, you bring up some interesting points, which I think uh, all the listeners and, and cyclists can relate to. And that's when we talk about being the best, that's being our, our best selves and putting ourselves in in competition is a lot, you know, putting us with a peer group that is allowing us to get to that limit and push a, a little bit further. And I think that's what makes cycling so, so re- relatable and you you can't fake it. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can have all the dreams watching NBA championships and then go shoot hoops and bang each other (laughs) and, and, you know, tell the stories, drinking beer afterwards. But as a cyclist, whether it's recreational, locally competitive or national, if you don't put in your homework and you go out with your friends, like you're physically left behind. Like Mm -hmm. that's what I was with my friends, you know, that I've been riding with for, for 30 years that we're still putting in the work. If you show up on the weekend, I mean, maybe they'll stay with you, but if it's, you know, not, not all day. So I think that's makes, makes cycling, um, just a beautiful sport. Yeah. And it's,
1: it's an interesting, you know, inherently humans are competitive. Like you put two people on a bike and there's a competitive spirit. Um, I think of the, you know, there's a local group right here that I do on Saturday mornings and one guy who I know is very capable uh showed up and and he was pretty quickly dropped and that's it's atypical of him and you know that was what he said. It's a cool ride because we do end up regrouping four or five times throughout the ride. And he's like he's just like, man, I just have not put in the time. I think over the course of that ride it's just become ever faster, ever more competitive because as a as a humankind, we want to be fast, we want to be fit, we want to be pushing our limits. Um, and that It's that fun shared experience of pushing each other is, is, you know, it's really special on the bike.
0: Yeah. Which, uh, unfortunately, in road cycling, as you know, um, riding with people who aren't as fit or new to the sporting, I started a high school team where I was working on Molino and working with the kids is fantastic. And then having, you know, raised three kids, as soon as they get on bikes, like you mentioned, you have this desire to go faster, which leads to some scary shit and to half wheeling and to surginess mm-hmm. um one in experience and two just being so dang excited you know mm-hmm. it's almost uncontrollable when you get on on a bike to um to do that um Let's see. So I'm going to segue into this. This is a little bit out of order as well, but we're talking about this. And we'll talk about your days in in California. And I know you lived uh, here in Marin County for, what was it, four or five years you were here? Or longer? Um, All said and done, I spent
1: probably a six-year window there. But truth be told, I I called it home for just two years. Um, So in that six-year window, it was like coming out to train for a month or two here or there. But actually living there was two.
0: Okay. And so why Moran, where did you live and, and, and tell us a little bit about the experience of uh, being part of the, the cycling community here in in Northern California.
1: Yeah, happy to. Um, it probably draws from being from new England where we don't have year round good weather. Um, so, you know, between the, between Thanksgiving and, and March we're in search of good, better weather, I should say. Um, I think the first draw was a really good friend and and now former teammate and now my agent. Um, he, Joao Correa was in, I suppose, Mill Valley. Um, and it was his draw. I mean, his, you know, having a a guest bedroom, uh, to go out there and, and find this place to go ride. Um, and the, the Bay area and Marin especially, it's just, it's almost this magical spot. Um, you know, you, you ride up Mount Tam, you're so close to huge, uh, major metropolitan city like San Francisco, one of the biggest cities in America. And you can ride for literally hour, two hours at times and not see a single car. Um, the riding is magnificent. Um, I like the small town feel of Marin of, uh, of Mill Valley. I mean, you know, there's certainly a Truman show aspect to it where you're like, <laughs> is this town real? Like, I don't get it, <laughs> but you know, there's something special that goes on there. So, you know, I would visit, like I said, I'd drop in for a month, a couple weeks here or there on the pursuit of good weather. And then, uh, yeah, fast forward to the end of the 2015 season. That's when I, retired from world tour bike racing. And I was, I knew that I, that cycling would still be a big aspect of my life. Um, I was moving back from Europe and I, I was zeroing in on three different places. It was either going to be California, Colorado, or back in new England. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, if I don't live in California now, I probably never will. So landed in mill Valley and yeah, I was there for the better part of two years and met my now wife uh, who I think she called Marin home for seven or eight years. Um, I thought it'd be a big challenge or it was a big challenge to convince her to move, but now she is head over heels for New England. So we really appreciate our time going back. Um, it's cool that we have work in, in the Healdsburg Sonoma area. So we get back, uh, pretty darn regularly. And that's a, that's certainly a privilege. Yeah.
0: And you know the the cycling community here, as you mentioned, they they ride year round, which does a couple of things. For one, is like this kind of high steady level of fitness for a large group uh, of of male and female athletes, and um, and in addition to that, um, I think it's this continued. It's become such a lifestyle for for people, um, okay. and. That folks, their group rides are every Friday or Saturday, all year round, year after year. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've seen with some very competitive uh, folks, I want to say competitive, very fit people, very committed to the sport, are people, say, living in San Rafael, committing, commuting to San Francisco. They take the ferry, and then they ride back and through the headlands. And so they'll be some of the strongest folks, but have full-time jobs. Um And I imagine you had some top pros to train with, and then there were others who had jobs and families and were at that fitness level. Tell me about that, how that relates to other parts of the world that you've traveled in. Is that unique? People so committed to these these blocks of of training or adding three hours to their commute to work to get their 20 (laughs) hours in in the week? Yeah, I mean, certainly the sport can become obsessive.
1: Um, it is, it's, it's very consuming. Um, you know, fitness is a self rewarding prophecy. Like the more fit you get, the more you want to get fit, the faster you want to get. Um, I'm a, I'm victim to that as much as anyone, but I also, I think especially coming from new England, I really like the seasons, seasons within a year, seasons of life. Um, mm-hmm. so, yeah. I mean, as, as much as we're, we're throwing praise on Northern California, Southern California is where you truly get perfect year round weather, right? I mean, there is a rainy season in Northern California and, and I think that's a good time to slow down. Um, I've trained in Arizona quite extensively. Uh, I lived in Girona, which has just become this cycling Mecca um, worldwide where, yeah, you see awesome training communities. And I think, I think, that community is a central theme in, in a lot of these places that i've chosen to live for obvious reasons because it's such an important part of my life but to your point yeah it's a, it's it's so unique it's so cool how cycling is a lifestyle i mean it's something you want to eat sleep breathe it's something you want to uh espouse to your children you know whether or not they race i could care less but there's so many good qualities that come from Riding a bike, whether it's fitness, whether it's health, whether it's uh, learning a regulated schedule, um, you know the friendships, the communities are just so darn powerful. So, yep, yeah, there's a whole lot there. Uh, I guess I'll leave it
0: at that for the yep. second. Yeah, I've seen uh, a couple of the folks local racers and some some of the you know the top the top riders that recently into fatherhood and before oh well this will be my last grasshopper for for years I'm going to be a dad and I kind of chuckle thinking well probably not because yeah I think I know you well enough that you're going to find a way to to carve that out and then you see them on the, the photos of their Zwift stuff with their while their kids napping and and I think it, it's good that one, when they enter parenthood, plans to make some adjustments and realizes that that's top priority. And yet there's something within us, once we've already been there, that that's a, a way of being in the world that would not be healthy to not do any longer, you know, in a, in a sense to not question so much, what it is that keeps us um, um, balanced and 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 healthy mentally and physically, and 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 because of the community that we're we're part of, I would say spiritually as well. It, in a sense, for me, uh, would be like the Buddhist term of the sangha, of the group of people that you that you hold dear and close, and that is part of your your community. But the uh, speaking to the fatherhood, you know. I don't know that you'll have this because it's also your your career as well. But to some extent, where I had to say, okay, I may not ride. There was this. There was a year where my only riding was grasshopper to grasshopper. So once a month, that literally <laughs> no was way. my ride. Wow! And as you could attest, it's it's competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you don't do your homework, you're going to get kicked in the teeth, right? And so trying to, oh, I'll be fine. I'll just go and ride and and let that go. And, uh, of course I didn't, you know, Mm -hmm. and was ended up napping on the side of Willow Creek road, eating, eating cookies, (laughs) but actually, you know, letting, letting that go and thought that I permanently let that go and realized, you know, actually I didn't let that go. And the fitness would come back. And as you said, you get more fit and you get more interested and you bring that back up. Um, but I think as parents, um, that's, that's quite, that's quite a, it's quite a cycle unintended.
1: I mean, I think that is, that's the season of life aspect. Um, you hit on it. I, I've certainly met people all over the world. I mean, I think some of my best friends here who, who say, ah, oh, shoot, well, this is my last season of riding a bike because parenthood's coming up next and over the next three years and up till the present, they're as fit as ever because they figured out a way to fill it, uh, put it into their schedule. Um, yeah, I'm certainly, I'm, I'm, Blessed, given how much I love riding a bike and and it is, it is a career as much as anything, um, even without the competition. And, you know, I question all the time, like what, what is next? Uh, but at the same time, I mean, doors continue to open. So I am, I'm in a very lucky place.
0: Yeah. Speaking of cycling parents, I noticed that Laura hasn't exactly slowed down, uh, with motherhood.
1: Nope. Uh, yeah, she was in a, We're in an interesting time in that the Olympics are now in 2021 and there was an interesting article about initially with COVID mothers of Olympians were not allowed to bring their daughters or uh, children, sons or daughters to the Olympics, like nursing mothers could not bring their children. And Laura was quoted in an article because she was stayed very fit all throughout uh, pregnancy and and early motherhood and up through the present. Um, Figured out a way to, to breastfeed throughout that window, and I mean that's just a little anecdote. Yeah, she is fit as a fiddle. Um, she's going to be doing Leadville this year, so that's a big goal, and that's certainly one you can't show up at without having done your homework. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, she's she's a ripper.
0: Yeah, and I think the takeaway from that is that there's space for both fathers and mothers to still be competitive and it's, it's their decision as opposed to a a sporting organization or anyone else to decide that they can or can't do that. And as you know, being a parent now, our ability to then to focus and time management and to budget and plan um, it, it it gets better or your life (laughs) unravels. So I think carving Mm -hmm. out those, those blocks of time and you guys seem, to be the super couple in terms of negotiating and bargaining for times where one will finish a ride and pass off and, and do the other Mm -hmm. one. So that, uh, so hats off to you on that. I'm sure it's not, you only post the nice pictures and tell the nice (laughs) stories of that because that's what we do on social media. Uh, Uh But anyways, you seem to be doing well with that. Yeah. I mean, I joke
1: like Hazel is, she is a phenomenal child. We are very, very lucky in how easy she is. She sleeps well. She eats well. She's, she's, you know, I think go back full picture in this, in this conversation. She's been a very easy child to raise and we are eternally lucky for that. Um, Yeah. There's not, uh, there's no shortage of negotiation that goes on in order to figure out how to ride. Um, It is my career and, and it's, it, It's something that Laura needs in her day to day and we certainly figure it out, but yeah, it's not as easy as like, bada boom, bada bing. Okay. We all (laughs) both go ride. I mean, you know, the drill, it's like to fit it
0: all in, takes a lot of work and family over there. I, I know your folks are close by, but it's not like you just drop Hazel off and and go out to dinner and Laura's folks aren't quite around either. So you rely probably on uh, sitters or friends.
1: Yeah. Bingo. I mean, we, With the pandemic, we haven't been out to dinner more than about twice in the past year and a half. Um, But yeah, my folks are two and a half hours away. Laura's are an entire country away. Um, We do have a fantastic sitter. Cool story there where in New Hampshire, where I was born and raised, two and a half hours away, uh, our current sitter's mother was my babysitter at a
0: young age. So another full circle. Um, Yeah. Yes, sir. Tell me about the, the King challenge. You talked, we talked about your parents a little bit. And I recently listened to the podcast with, with your dad, which was a very touching, um, touching interview. The, the love for each other was clear and the humor, um, you know, and Mm -hmm. so tell me a little bit. I, I I think these, the stroke was in 2003. So you were, you were pretty young and that was pretty young to, to be dealing with that as a family. Um, uh-huh. And now you have a bike ride for that uh, in support of people with living with uh, injuries. So tell us a little bit about um, that, if you care to share.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Very happy to talk about it. Um, I was a sophomore in college when my dad had a stroke. Uh, I remember vividly where I was. And I was driving back from spring break back to my parents. Uh, and on the highway in New Jersey and got a call that my dad was in the hospital. And that was not atypical because he was an orthopedic surgeon. Um, but turns out he was a patient as opposed to being uh, a physician on call. So oh man, I mean brain injuries are very misunderstood, I think, as a as a society in general. Um my dad, like it wasn't like his life was shaken up a little bit. The carpet has been ripped out from under him. He is a different person. Um, this, the husband to my to my mom, Like he, it's, he's a different human being. Um, there are enormous physical disabilities. There are enormous uh, mental capacity uh, disabilities. And, and every day is a challenge. Every day is a big challenge. And truth be told, my dad is on the relatively high functioning side of having a, a brain injury. But, um, I mean, yeah, that was what 18 years ago. Um, and it's still very difficult. So trying to draw some, some lemonade out of these lemons, um, an acquaintance of mine from New Hampshire said, Hey, w- let's create a, a charity bike ride. And this was 2011. Um, we created an event called the King challenge, which benefits the Kremple center. The Crimple Center is a pretty unique but a, a very needed organization in Seacoast, New Hampshire uh, to benefit the lives of, of those living with brain injury. And when I say needed, brain injury is this hidden epidemic all throughout the world, all throughout the country, certainly. Yes. It's the kind of thing that we need every hundred miles throughout the country. I mean, it's almost... In the same need as a hospital but but the Cremple center is a very unique place there are not a lot of these facilities and organizations so the longer story short um we created a ride it's been now we're going into our 11th year we raise about a hundred thousand dollars every year uh, entirely going to the Cremple center and it's just it's awesome um the the, the fun that day it, it's you just you know, it's a day that makes me happier than, than any other day that I have on a bike throughout the year. Um, and I certainly was doing this throughout my racing career as well. And, you know, the race, the Tour de France is cool, but to be there among so many friends and supporters and family and Kremple Center members is fantastic. Um, one thing that makes the Kremple Center unique is it's not another uh outpatient therapy it's not another place that like when when you have a brain injury you're going to be put through therapy you're going to learn how to walk swallow eat put on your pants learn how to cook again i mean like try to be a a functioning member of of humankind that's what they do in original therapies but then once insurance money is gone you know been tapped out then you're spat out into the world and life is still very challenging like you don't know how to get on a bus you don't know how to negotiate social interactions you don't know how to you know emote your emotions um anyway the kremple center is a fantastic organization uh the king challenge whose shirt i'm wearing right now is a incredible ride so check those things out kingchallenge.org and
0: kremplecenter.org yeah, thank you for sharing that, Ted. I I can imagine this. That's helped you. I don't know if that's the right word, but in, in the career, looking at something bigger than yourself for your professional career, you know, and through those mm-hmm. through those hard times, that's something that a day doesn't go by without you thinking about the well being of of your family. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me in sport, it's always been fascinating. That it's difficult to be too much of a spectator of a fan, or to really idealize the lifestyle uh, of professional athletes and the and the the amount of dedication and, and single minded focus for that, um, and to be able to go back and forth for me balancing the grasshoppers, which is just pure pleasure, and en- well, it's not pure pleasure; a lot of enjoyment of creating something for the community picking organizations to help raise money for, and then my, my teaching job. So, um, there has to have been difficult times for you with your training where that's kind of your, 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 your North star, so to speak.
1: Yeah. I mean, to put it mildly, um, it's been, it's been a North star in my whole life, uh, from You know, on the the very positive side, my dad was a very hardworking individual. He was, like I said, orthopedic surgeon. He was the the foundation of our family, um, the pillar of the community. I mean, he was just a a very stand-up person and and sort of, you know, that life was slashed from him. Um, It's not a typical career choice to pursue professional cycling, but, you know, seeing how quickly things can change, I think that's what inspired me a lot especially early on in my career like hey here's this opportunity to race a bike Mm -hmm. what a wild opportunity i have a degree in economics i could go to pursue a job at wall street bike racing sounds like way more fun so you know no regrets there And and i thought often about my dad's path and and what was taken from him so you know basically like live in the moment really appreciate the time we have um he it certainly inspire the way that I want to be a father to Hazel, just foundational. Uh, Yeah, there are, there, the, the pursuit of professional cycling or probably any sport is so selfish at times. You need to be focused on yourself. You need to be focused on your, your time and your schedule. And when things don't go right, that's something I, I gleaned from my dad. Like if things don't go right, that's a bump in the road, deal with it, figure out how to pivot, figure out how to make it okay, how to make it better. And just deal with those really potentially challenging moments, and <laughs> don't let it derail you. Yeah, uh,
0: one one last question about this or observation is before we move on. And listening to the podcast, I thought it was really sweet, if I can use that term. You're asking him about his career and what was <laughs> what was most special about it, and it was the fact that he crea- he had a livelihood that he could do fun trips with you guys skiing. And for me, that rings so true as a parent. We think, you know, when we're younger, what's my dream job? Where where am I going to live? What's my income? How does it fulfill me? And for me, my jobs, plural, are fulfilling, but they're most fulfilling in that I'm taking care of my family. And I think I was struck by the way you interviewed him and you're like, really, Pops? Like (laughs) like, like the ski
1: trips? Yeah. I just got, yeah, I got a complete kick out of that. I think. In his pre-stroke life, he would have had a different answer. And I, uh, I I loved the wit and the humor that he had with that answer. Yeah, I mean, the question verbatim was like, hey, tell me about your, your career and your life. Like, did you enjoy being a doctor? And he said, well, I enjoyed that. It allowed us to go on cool ski trips all <laughs> throughout the world. Right. <laughs> and I mean, those are incredibly memorable. Yeah, we, were, we skied in many continents. Uh, that was awesome. and the kind of memory that's going to last a lifetime and and, the kind of thing that you want to somehow, somehow, some way impart to your kids, whether it's skiing on the other side of the world or going on a sick bike ride with them
0: somewhere even closer. That's great. Um, I have a little segue here to discuss, uh, social media and, um, I would, I would assume I could be incorrect, but having a degree in mathematics and economics, and open looking at opening doors and opportunity, that you've been a businessman all along, and that your career as a cyclist um, was—you were partly you're driven to to create a, a business, and now you are. I am Ted King, and you, you are you. You are a brand. You have other brands, but you are you, and. I don't – This that didn't really exist much prior to, I would say, 2007. And then that started earlier. 2007 is where the broadband and things just went boom. It was ubiquitous, and people could become self-marketers. And I think it's a double-edged sword. And And to me, it looks like you're always working. I mean, you're having fun, but I can't imagine when – you're not working, you know. Just knowing what I do, everything is maybe something that's uh, a story or a content or something. Um, so, so talk to us about what what that means when someone does something like this and pizza privateer. Which, uh, you know, I think it's great that people can become self employed, but as professional athletes it's totally consuming just to be an athlete, to ask athletes to also be a brand ambassador and a spokesperson for the sport and a leader on social advocacy and on equity and inclusivity and environmental issues. It's, it's a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Your eyes got big there. So maybe I'm hitting something on there. I'll, I'll leave it at that. What What are your thoughts on no, this?
1: Yeah. My eyes went big, especially towards the end of that, because you're right. It's, it's such a social advocacy thing and, everyone expects you to have an answer to any number of things under the sun. And I'm not going to politicize this talk because that's the last thing I want to do. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a product of having grown through a social media age and heaven help us what direction we're going from here and you know, what is Facebook going to be in a decade? What is Instagram going to be in a decade? Um, I, I I jumped on board with a lot of the social media channels early on, you know, the ones that I continue to use. So, so take Strava, for example. Um, I mean, I think Strava is a a very powerful social media tool. And one thing that I love about Strava, in fact, is how positive people are on there. Like the comments, 99.9% of the time are uplifting, cool, positive, happy comments. You go to a place like Facebook and there's a lot of negativity going on. Um, it is you're right it is all consuming you think about the world in a slightly different way knowing that you know like what what things surround you could be a tweet what could be what observation can be said in a witty way that is going to get you a couple more likes like i hate that to be honest (laughs) Uh, i try to be quite candid um, and i'm sort of jumping all over the place with this with this response all throughout my career, my my being candid is, I think, what ingratiated me to a fan base. Um, I created a blog in 2007, which allowed me to, instead of writing 16 emails to friends and family from whatever race I was just at, it was a way to put out a blog and here are my observations from the race. It was you know, 10% bike race and 90% everything else that's going on, be it the travel, the food, the community, my teammates, the fun and that continued through my racing career um you know got a little bit more colorful and interesting as i'm living and racing overseas and i think a lot of social media is, is short form blogging like a tweet can be an observation uh instagram is a photo of whatever cool site that i'm seeing or, or meal that i'm eating um so that that candid nature i think actually you know that's a a really good positive um it allows us to stay connected in a really good way but yeah it's wild to like you said to be self-employed in this way i remember having a conversation with pete in his first year i think it was probably january of was it last year um his first year being a privateer and he was he was really bubbly and excited about how much time he's been able to train then. And and he's like, I did the biggest winter I've ever done and I can ride all these different things. And I tried to reel him in and be like, Pete, riding is the easy part. Like to be this privateer, you you, you're on call all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. There's, there is an onus to it and it's easy to do for a year and it's easy to do for two years, but the longevity is, is what makes it a challenge. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you have to pivot. You have to think about what what remains relevant. You have to um, be true to yourself. Like you don't want to be a total <laughs> sellout. So it's yeah. been it's been really cool with us. You know, the, the I, I think what's ingratiated us to a fan base continually is is being parents now. You know, like being a privateer is, is rad and fun, and and then you get to you know go back to like ten years prior and be this jumping. Couch to couch, race to race, but now to, to find that balance and to do it as parents and to try to continue to fit it all in like that, I think is much more relatable to a mass cycling audience.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Um, I, you know, for us, we I don't post rarely. I post some bike stuff with with my son, but you know, we consciously chose that our children aren't part of our social media thing, and part of that is you know, it's very personal. It's a personal choice. And then part of it also is our kids have been at Waldorf where we're trying to not shelter kids, but, you know, keep them in, let kids be kids a little bit longer and also not have a digital profile by the time they're <laughs> X age. And that that that's important. Let let individuals decide who they want to be. It's different when they're babies and they're little, but as they become younger and they're doing sports and they're dancing, um, I, I see that ultimately as consumers of social media that the FOMO, the fear of missing out. I mean, I question for myself, I'm always introspective and like thinking about thinking and thinking about the thinking of my thinking that (laughs) usually one is on social media long enough that there's ultimately, it ends with a feeling of, of less happy rather than more happy. There may be a little burst to that, but then it's like, Oh, look at this other ride. It's, it's, it is tricky. Like you said, um, it leads to that connection in that community. And then, you know, it kind of goes down, um, into a, into a rabbit hole. And with rabbit hole, I'm going to segue into my next segment here. I saw, oh, I saw a look on you. Did you have a comment about that? No, I was just thinking about the rabbit hole. I call it the, the ever
1: revolving wheel of social media. You're right. I mean, there's this, this chase of social media and the, the irony is, just wait a day a week a month and nothing has changed like it's still just going around and around and around you can't keep up and you're right about uh, producers of social media like i i use the term i'm a producer of social media and i hope i don't want to be producing stuff that people are thinking they have fomo towards i try not to be a consumer of it i hate when i find myself in the the death scroll spiral yeah. So, yeah, I make a very conscious effort to not consume much.
0: But I mean just by who you are, I mean you're you're selling the adventure of a trip to Iceland and that idea of the new set of wheels and mm-hmm. this Grupo just simply buy those things, there's the next thing, there's the lifestyle creep, there's the thing and this isn't to criticize you, it's the nature of, of our consumerism and I think you know, of it, it it's tapped into what's normal for us, which is to compare. Um, mm-hmm. we learn, but we're used I think we're wired to compare to a smaller peer group around mm-hmm. us that truly influence us, whereas now that is then rather infinite just with the, with a click of our fingers. so that's that's a yeah. tough one to 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 think that we can control ourselves when it's uh it's 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 big. well, it's so commodified,
1: you know I mean, Every, like you said, your peers are your sales group now. Um, I think of it because I do a good portion of the marketing at Untapped, so putting on an Untapped business hat, so to speak. Like we are in a position that we're now having to chase and look into, you know, social media advertising, and that grits me, <laughs> like because <laughs> it, it just shows how insincere, not insincere, but uh, I don't know how how commercialized social media is. At one point, Instagram was to show a cool photo of whatever you were doing, and now it's, it is sales, it is marketing, it is part of the Facebook machine. Yeah. Why can't we really just read advertisements <laughs> in the
0: New York Times? Yeah. All right, Ted, my next segment is called This or That. All right, so I'm just going to give you two things, and you're just going to choose which one. Okay. Can't right think too much, too much about cool. it. Not too, not too deep, but you know, a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Uh, gravel or mountain bike? Gravel. Honey or maple syrup? Oh, please, maple syrup, hundred <laughs> percent. Rivers, ocean, ocean. Paper maps, GPS. Ooh, good old gazetteer, paper maps. Astronaut or sailor? <laughs> sailor. Okay. Cook or clean the dishes? Cook. <laughs> fix it, call for help. <laughs> <laughs> These are great. Uh,
1: I want to say fix it, but most <laughs> likely call for help. <laughs>
0: okay. Sunrise. Or sunset. Sunrise, hundred percent. Heat or cold? Cold. Dang. Well, I would make sense. New England or yeah. You I have to. Okay. And the last one, have to or get to. Get to because you have to. <laughs> It, now looking at you sitting in your office i know our answers are different at different times about those types of that question
1: yeah and it's all the perception of how i'm absorbing
0: the question and spitting it out i think yeah to, yeah to expound on these would be to no, open up more eyes all right and really to put you on the spot here right now um success what does that mean what is it cool how to define success.
1: That is man, definitions are very difficult. Uh because it's like success in what stance? Success is a positive outcome to a scenario in which there are many inputs. How's that for Vague?
0: That's perfect. No, no, I, I I love it. And It moves and it changes over time. It exa- exactly. Um. So what we're going to transition to a little bit now. I keep saying transition. This is just a big flow. It should be a stream. It's a podcast, right? So what's on, what, what's on tap? We've done past, we've done present, future. Ted King, tell me tell me what's up. I looked at your calendar. You got some fun stuff going on. What? What's cooking?
1: The best laid plans. Um, I mean, to go a bit back to what I've gleaned from life and and as a result of my dad's brain injury, for example, I I don't ever wanna look too far down the pipeline. I mean, I think it is smart and prudent to set yourself up for success. <laughs> Set your family up for success. Uh, be thinking about thinking about a future. I mean, just don't be naive to it. Don't stick your head in the sand. But m- because most of my career post college has happened happenstancely, I mean, you know, with a great deal of hard work and a great deal of luck, um, and not a whole lot of expectation. I, I, in a way, I just sort of continue that um so i mean status quo for for all intents and purposes i recognize i can't be riding a bike at it and be racing it at a at the level that i am forever but truth be told here in 2021 i wasn't expecting to be doing now what i was doing five years ago um i i love the opportunities that it's allowed me and i don't Really want to change what's going on in the in the short term, so more of the same, I suppose is the answer.
0: Yeah, that's good news. More of the same. I forgot to I forgot to talk about the past. I forgot to talk about where we met and like why even know you and about these special times we've had laying mm-hmm. in the dirt, old calves. We've had a couple yeah. of those together. Oh man, so let's not end with the future. Let's go back into the past. Look at that. So for the listeners who don't know, uh, I'll tell a little story. This isn't when Ted got hurt. This is a little further back. So old Kaz, this was leading into, I think, the 20th year. So 20 years we did old Kaz. And uh, I got invited for a pre-ride by a big group from Marin and brought my son to ride. I think, how old was Xander? 14 maybe, I'm guessing, something like that. 14 or 15. And uh, he's riding pretty good, hanging out. And we get to the top of old Kaz. And, um, you know, for me riding, I like to go downhill. I don't take and say risks. But, like, for me, being in the zone is is when there's, you know, when you're going downhill. So I take off first down old Kaz and don't really think about who's behind me as long as it's everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> and I get down to the bottom of the river and mm-hmm. no one shows up. And I thought, hmm, that's not so good. Mm-hmm. And someone comes down and says, hey, Xander crashed your son. We mm-hmm. think he broke the collarbone. I said, oh, shit, come back up. And there you are with, in the best hands possible, Otis Guy. Uh, I think there was also an ER doctor an ER nurse taking care of Xander. And but the timing was good so I'd been wondering how do we how do we get to someone if some, if they get hurt on Old Cas? We're expecting 5 or 600 people. I mean I had a plan. I have a plan. Everyone has a plan, right? But like uh-huh. how do we really get there? And this was I think a week before and we found out we got him out. <laughs> but I think you got to uh-huh. see that. I think you got to see his Oh, he crashed because he decided to pass you. Yeah, I was immediately on your wheel on that descent, and then
1: there's this whippersnapper chomping at the bit, and so I slowed down. I said, "Hey, go
0: chase your dad." <laughs> <And> eight <laughs> seconds later, he had a snapped collarbone. Yeah, lesson, lesson, lesson learned on that. But anyway, so we were riding a, a few weeks back, and you had a crash with a with horrific. Collarbone and, and I always knew you were tough, but the fact that you're on your bike riding a few days later, people were wondering, thinking you had were using canned photos from previous to that. Are you did that Yeah, exactly. Well that's why I just showed you my scar. I'm like, see, this is legit. Uh yeah.
1: having been through what I keep saying is having been through the, the process of breaking collarbones and the surgery and knowing how quickly you can repair like your orthopedically back together. If your bones haven't yet knit uh i was able to expedite the healing process if it was my first rodeo breaking my bones i probably would
0: have listened to the doctor much more closely and not be riding five days later <laughs> yeah it worked it worked out it worked out okay for you yeah, that was fun getting well. together and riding in, in uh in uh hillsburg and doing that event together out of the mill district uh i do recall you and laura being out to the grasshoppers early on in your relationship. Mm-hmm. And I remember her, I think she was working for goo the first time I met her and she was racing. So I think that was PT as in pre Ted. Uh, mm-hmm. No, there's a lot of good connections. I think my first ever hopper was, was
1: out of Healdsburg and that was uh, geysers and up to top of pine flat. Um, and I, I just had heard from my time in Northern California, I heard of this this funny training ride that you pay money for and there might be cupcakes at the finish and maybe you win a bottle of wine. And I thought, man, what a strange way to spend $20. Like I'd rather just do a training ride by myself. And I want to say the year was 2007 when that happened. And upon finishing the ride, I said, that was the best $20 I've ever spent in the sport of cycling. Um, yeah, I've been hooked ever since. And it's, it's wild to think at that point you were already what, almost a decade old at these. And I mean, yeah, no one was saying gravel in 2007. That's for darn sure. But
0: we started in 98, I think was the first year that we threw out the paper. That's That's nuts.
1: Oh yeah. And then I, I, that was the first event that I did post world tour career and Levi was there and Kabush was there uh, a whole bunch of hitters. And I hadn't really done anything for the previous four or five months. And I thought I was just going to get swept by a, somebody like Levi and then I won the event and I remember saying to Levi, Hey man, that was cool. I love these things. I've never lost one. I've, I've done two and I've won two. And he's like, Ted, I've never lost one of these having just beat him. <laughs> so yeah, Laura was there. We just met basically a week prior, all sorts of good connections.
0: Yeah. I remember old, old Kaz was, was fun in that way. I mean, that's the one that stands out to people because that was the one where, you know, you know, in Northern California, and I think most people know, but I wouldn't say most. A lot of listeners, gravel, it, it's limited in in this area, and so for us, it's more of a connecting roads as opposed to doing endless, endless, endless gravel roads. So it's evolved differently, and that that was the basis of of doing old cars. But to be able to, uh, have it grow from a from a few few folks on the weekend up to a large scale event has been fun, and uh, you know. Mm-hmm. Continue to go to new places and discover cool thing places to ride and uh we'll see where it leads us. Like you said, the future, you know, you keep doing what you're doing and it evolves and changes and never certain. Bingo. Well
1: what? There's there's talk of an international grasshopper, is that right? I mean go down somewhere close to the
0: equator. That is, that is. We're working on an event. Um that should be for 2022 down in down in Costa Rica. And uh nice. I'm really excited about doing that and add some other little for me to be able to combine uh travel, uh being a Spanish teacher, loving, living and speaking Spanish, and then you know, creating an event uh, yeah. that's expanding just uh where we can go and travel to do cool things on the bike—it's just—it's it's exciting for me. So it's hard to be somehow. Awesome. And is that with my three kids and my teaching job and uh, <laughs> well, my podcast now? My uh, yeah. Anyway, so Ted, I really appreciate your time here. And uh, we went past the uh, statistical average of forty-seven minutes, well over into an hour, because we have so much <laughs> to talk about about bikes. Uh, but I'm sure you have some untapped things on your agenda today yes siree bob well it's been a pleasure i appreciate the time and and even asking me so thanks very much Meg. all right we'll have you back on when we're talking uh parents who ride all right that's our guest ted king thank you very much and we'll see you next time